I'm Peter Krakow, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, The Real ESP Experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 323. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Beckmann. See ya! Hey son, hey son! Just the two of us uh, today. Yeah, what? unfortunately, uh, Anika couldn't make it. We had to reschedule the recording because we are uh, having an interview oui. tonight with Peter Kreko, who's a social psychologist from Hungary. He's doing an amazing job at uh, educating good, the public. Yeah. He writes books and all that. So I really hope that our listeners will li- would like the interview as much as we liked recording it. So how have you been? I've been well, thank you very much. Not too bad, I think. There's a lot busy. of... Busy? Uh, busy, as I said to you before we started recording, there are no weekends for Pontus anymore. Every day is working day. <laughs> but know. that doesn't matter. I, I enjoy what I'm doing, so that's good. Yeah, it would be nice to get paid for it, right? As well. <laughs> that, would, that would help, so... <laughs> oh my god. Go yeah. to patreon.com slash the ESP and see what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you can spare a couple of thousand euros a month that would help us out a big time you know yeah, yeah, yeah. We could, I, we could. send one dollar and i'll be happy yeah yeah exactly you do that. exactly you do it that. helps a lot it helps a lot because at least we don't need to spend actively spend money on stuff <laughs> if we can't buy equipment and um hosting services and all that stuff mm-hmm. with the money that we get mm-hmm. from our listeners so thank you very much and we appreciate it very much well, we've been busy with the Hungarian skeptics as well. Yeah. I told you on the last episode that on the day of the release of the last episode, we announced the winner of this year's Flat Earth Award. Flat Earth Awards, yes. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the winner is a guy by the name Gabor Varga. And he's, uh, well, not famous, infamous, Hmm. more like, Hmm. for uh, selling fungus products. So a product based on fungi and something that is called C-peptide. Now, the thing is with his work is that um, it has an element of truth, scientific truth, in what he does. That's the worst kind of pseudoscience, when there is something that you could defend, but it is, of course, much more complicated. And Yes, and uh, everything that he claims his products can be used for is not supported by scientific evidence. He exaggerates a lot about his products, and for that, he has been fined on several occasions by the Hungarian Competition Authority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for claiming things that are not supported by scientific evidence. So, but is um, it the case that they find him not enough, so it's still worth it for him to continue? Exactly. Yeah. It is It is a classical case of that. Common exactly. problem, yeah. So we decided to give him the, the Flat Earth Award, and um, he hasn't been given the actual award, the placard, yet. He For some reason, he, he never attended the ceremony, the, the award <laughs> ceremony. I can't imagine why. How do you usually but, do that? Do you send that placard to him or what do you do? We did ask the, the last year. So it's only the second year that we've been doing That's this. Right, yeah. So last year's winners did not even react to it in any way that suggested that they would like to get the, the actual award. It's still waiting for them to, to take. Mm-hmm. But this year, now, we are in a bit of a comment war on uh, Facebook with this guy. Okay, so he and did now notice. now we're ne- negotiating yeah. terms for actually handing over the award to him. And uh, I have to add, <laughs> I have to add that one thing that we attached this year, as opposed to last year's award that was only a plaque, this year we are giving him the book 
as well. Another book that uh, Peter Greco mentions on the interview, which is uh, their latest book, it's an amazing thing as well. I just started reading it. It's called The Age of Charlatans, but only available in Hungarian, unfortunately. So far. Uh, For now, that is. Mm -hmm. But there is one that we have been promoting like crazy, and that's Anne-Marie Bond's Fake. Oh, yeah, that's right. So we decided to give the awardee the book as well, as a side thing. Just in case he reads it, he realizes that he's been doing it wrong. I don't know. (laughs) I I think the odds are not, but okay, give him a chance. Yeah, we have seen people change their minds based on the evidence that they they were faced. Not very likely with Gabor Varga. He's a little bit out there. Mm -hmm. And he's a conspiracy theorist as well, Mm -hmm. which which brings me to... What I'm going to be doing tomorrow as of the day of this recording. Yeah. I was invited to a university seminar to give a, a short talk and then lead the discussion on conspiracy theories. Very good. Very good. And on top of that, that university seminar was organized by a Jesuit college. Oh, so absolutely amazing. And uh, we have had very good relationship with uh, Jesuits here in Hungary with regards to pseudoscientific debates. Uh, when we were debating creationists, uh, Hungarian creationists, a couple of years ago, then they were the ones moderating it and they did a very good job and very fine job at that. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Will Francis be there? He, he's, a, he's a Jesuit. Yeah, he is. Yeah, mm. yeah but um, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm not expecting him to appear no. on the spot, but uh, well, who knows? That's right. <laughs> he has been to Hungary a couple of times, I think. And uh, yeah. he, is, he has a crazy travel schedule coming up this year. I don't know if Hungary is mm. on the list, but... Um, no, it's seen, especially since Orban just visited him in the Vatican. So, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, There good. was an audience. Good for yeah. you. But it's very interesting to go out and talk to students of any age, that. really. I've done that mm-hmm. many times to yeah, very, most often to secondary schools. So mm-hmm. students who are 16, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. But also a couple of times to even younger students. And it's you should not underestimate their ability to put very, very good questions at you. Yeah. And they can be very good skeptics. They're very smart. (laughs) And that's uh, hopeful. Yeah, I love working with children. Mm -hmm. This is probably one of the greatest things that the pandemic gave to me, the opportunity to tutor um, young people. And I really like that. Especially explaining science is, is my passion. And especially biology, that is my field. So, yeah. But... I think, without further ado, we should probably (laughs) start the interview that we recorded not too long ago. Let's do that. Every now and then, we interview someone whose work is of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. This week, we are talking to Hungarian social psychologist, political scientist and disinformation expert Peter Kreko, who is the executive director of Political Capital, an independent policy research institute in Hungary. He's had fellowships at some of the most illustrious universities of countries from the UK to Austria and the US. He wrote his PhD dissertation on conspiracy theories, but also wrote books on this and other similar topics. His first book, the title of which translates to English as Mass Paranoia, deals with the social psychological basis for fake news and conspiracy theories. His latest book that he co-wrote and co-edited bears the title Charlatan Okura, which translates as The Age of Charlatans, and it was released only about a week ago. He's an associate professor of Utvöschlorand University in Budapest, and he's a very frequent guest on television panels on topics ranging from conspiracies to misinformation and propaganda. Also, he will be one of the speakers at the European Skeptics Congress in Vienna, held between the 9th and 11th of September this year, where He'll be participating in the Sunday session on conspiracy theories. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Oh my God, this was quite a mouthful. (laughs) But we've been meaning to interview you for a long, long time. And I know that we've been trying to schedule this uh, between you and me for a long time. But we're very happy to have you here on the show. So... um, Pleasure is mine. (laughs) There are so many things that uh, we need to ask you. One of them, I think we should probably start with the latest. 
yesterday we saw a couple of very promising signs from across Europe. I'm referring to Slovenia and France. The extremists and the very nationalistic side of politics did not succeed in these two countries in the, the latest elections. Still, something is there that doesn't make me happy enough about these results. Because we could see, for example, Marine Le Pen not winning, but still gaining on Emmanuel Macron in the last couple of years since the latest elections. Why do you think that could be? Yes, I, I think it's good if we are reserved to a certain extent in our optimism. Because on the one hand, yeah, it seems to be a good news for even for skeptics that two prominent players of the European populist radical right, mm -hmm. who are usually big promoters of conspiracy theories, they have lost on elections in Slovenia and in, in France as well. On the other hand, especially if we take a look at the results of France, 42% of the French voters supported a candidate that is still obviously a far-right candidate who is Eurosceptic, who is NATO-sceptic as well, and what is even closer to our topic, whose political family and also whose uh, media infrastructure is promoting pro-Russian narratives, relativist narratives, conspiracy theories, xenophobic, anti-Muslim narratives big time. Mm -hmm. uh, and 42% is, is a pretty high result, mm -hmm. even if, of course, it might seem as a relief uh, compared to the expectation that Marine Le Pen can even win the elections. But I would warn about being overly optimistic for one more reason. And this is that we are heading towards an economic crisis, partially because of the war of Russia against Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia are both important providers of the world's food products. And uh, we can expect, how to say, a green period of shortages, of economic problems, of high inflation, and so on. And also a, a constant period where the looming danger of the escalation of the war the Russian threats of a tactical nuclear strike and so on will all prevail. And I think it will just create an increasing demand for political solutions that are about, let's say, try to make some agreement with Russia at least, try to pull out of this conflict, do not provide Ukraine with, with weapons, or mm -hmm. just even to put it in a broader sense, if we feel that our existence, our material security, our life is in possible danger, then we are getting more receptive to conspiracy theories, to pseudoscience, and to all the ideas that are providing some kind of fake shelter and fake comfort in these troubled times. So for that reason, I would not say that, that the rationality has just made a huge and long-lasting defeat on irrationality. And just one last thought about the elections yesterday. In that respect, or when it comes especially to the relationship towards Russia and Moscow and Ukraine, the two Eurosceptic populists that have been defeated are quite different because Yanis Yansha was a very harsh critic of Vladimir Putin, a strong supporter of uh, the governor of, of the president of Ukraine. And he also visited Kiev yes. together with his Polish and his Czech counterparts. So it's also it's quite important, I think, especially because of that, that issue is, is becoming the most important of our times, I think, to differentiate between different kinds of populists. And I do think that in that regard, Marine Le Pen, who represents this pro-Russian line of right-wing populism, represents something, I think, more malevolent, more dangerous for the security of the world than Yanis Yansha. 
Yeah, but it has to do also with the size of the country and the size of the population of the the, the country. Because yes, Slovenia is a two million, it's a two million strong country, whereas there are tens of millions living in France. Yes, and the second most important country in the European Union that yeah. wants to be the most important country of the <laughs> European Union under the leadership of Macron. Yeah. So speaking of, of political elections and, and stuff, we just had a Hungarian election as well. To what extent do you think state propaganda influenced the results? I think the huge disinformation machinery that the Hungarian government operates had a huge impact on, on the results. Let me illustrate it with two important data that comes from the polls. One is most of the Hungarians thought before the elections that if the opposition is going to win, then Hungary will send troops to Ukraine. And also the majority of the Hungarians thought that it could mean that Hungarian fathers and children are recruited in the army. So you should know that Hungary has a professional army as most of the countries uh, in, in the Western world, which means that even if Hungary would enter into the conflict, which is not an option whatsoever, and there has been no signals of it from the opposition side, it would not mean that everyday Hungarians would be recruited in the army. It would mean that the professional army would, would enter. So it was an obvious piece of fake news. The other important piece of fake news that the, was spread by the governmental media machinery is that the children in Hungary are in danger of sex-changing surgeries. Uh, it, I mean, if I say that this is not a prime topic in Hungary, this is a huge understatement. First, when Fidesz introduced this topic into the public, they had to explain to their voters what the hell sex-changing surgeries means, because it's really not part of the everyday problems of Hungary. And, and majority of the Hungarians thought that it's somehow, you know, it's a real danger. And let me one more piece of data. About two-thirds of the Hungarians after the pandemic was not aware of the fact that Hungary was among the leaders in the European Union when it came to mortality per one million people. So, in fact, Hungary showed the second highest mortality in the European Union after Bulgaria and the fourth highest in the world. And two-thirds of the population was not aware of this fact. And what? how can you explain it otherwise if not with this huge media machinery in Hungary? More than 500 media outlets have been put in the last few years in one huge media foundation conglomerate. Silvio Berlusconi could never, ever dreamed of such a media mm -hmm. empire and it's the most centralized within the European Union. I just fell in love into the concept of information autocracy. And informational autocracy, I think, pretty well describes the Hungarian regime in the sense that it's, it's not a democratic regime anymore. And the results of the elections should be interpreted, taking the institutional context into consideration. Still, it's not a classical autocracy because the state does not have to apply violence does not have to put critics in jail because information is the most important tool to influence elections these days. And yeah, we could see in the results that this is a highly successful model, even if Orban is increasingly isolated right now, even in Central Eastern Europe. Diplomatically, most of his critics admire him big time as well because he shows the model, if you want to save your power, this is the way of doing so. So I think the Hungarian model can spread to other countries of Europe as well. We can just remind ourselves that Heinz Christian Strache in the infamous Ibiza Gate scandal in the videotape was just talking about Viktor Orban's media model as a model to follow. And he was quite envious about what media system Orban could build up. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> okay. I've been uh, talking about Orban a lot on this show in the last couple of months. But um, yeah, I just got even more depressed about the situation here in Hungary. However, when it comes to disinformation campaigns, I think the greatest master of all is probably Vladimir Putin, right? I've been wondering 
to stick a little bit with the topic of um, the war in Ukraine, could that war be still going on if it weren't for the disinformation campaigns being so successful? Very good question. No, I think uh, disinformation is an extremely important uh, state-sponsored disinformation, which I think is important to talk about because when we talk about disinformation, we like to think about it as always something external and always something marginal. No, in our days, disinformation can be pretty mainstream, and we could see it in the United States and, and elsewhere as well. So in the Western world, state-sponsored disinformation is an increasing problem as well. And when it comes to Russia, the best researchers of Russian disinformation invented a concept, and I would refer to Peter Pomerantsev here, postmodern dictatorship. Postmodern dictatorship in the sense that, on the one hand, it is ruling by narratives. And of course, we can see that uh, Putin's regime is turning more violent these days. But so far, it well fitted to this concept of informational autocracy as well, even if, of course, a much more hardcore autocracy than the Hungarian regime. But information is crucially important in, let's say, producing and reproducing the legitimacy of the regime. And if we take a look at right now what is happening in Russia, and of course, it had a long, long history beforehand, I mean, how to prepare the public opinion for a war. But right now, most of the Russians think, because this is the only information they hear, is that Russia is just fighting a special operation of self-defense. And and the story in the Russian media is not that the Russian soldiers are committing mass atrocities and the genocide against Ukrainian civilians, but the other way around, how Ukrainians were committed genocide against people in the Donbass and elsewhere. And for this latter narrative, you don't have any proof whatsoever, not even the bodies that Russia is a member of, like the OSC, like the Council of Europe, like the United Nations came up with any proof for that claim. Still, this is the dominant narrative in the Russian public opinion. And we can see, of course, the validity of the Russian polls is in question. But the level of the poll, which might be one of the most credible posters within Russia, a poster that is put on the list of foreign agents as well. So it's not really beloved by the Kremlin, but it also shows that before the beginning of the war, Putin's popularity has been on the rise. And because this rally around the flag effect, this, let's say, war hysteria that the regime was spreading is highly successful and so successful that it even pushes the uh, material needs of the Russian people in the background, because of course they suffer of the consequences of the war and the sanctions as well. But information can be so powerful that it can overwrite your basic needs. And we don't know for how long it will last, but Putin was definitely showing the way for world authoritarians on how to occupy the media system and how to rule with narratives, sometimes it contradicting narratives. That's what this postmodern term refers to, contradicting narratives where you're just lost in the narratives and you just don't think that there is reality in the world. But still, it, if you are just lost in the jungle of narratives, then it's already a win for the regime because it just can push you into uh, passivity and giving up and learned information, learned helplessness. So either if you are persuaded that the Putin regime is doing the right thing, or you are just totally lose your ability to differentiate between truth and lies, both are a win for an autocratic regime. Yeah. So I think... Propaganda and uh, misinformation is not a new concept. It's always been around. But do you think, not do you think, because how do you think social media has changed the pace and the success of spreading misinformation? Because that's the factor or one of the bigger factors that are new in this age. Yes, that's, I think, crucially important. And in most parts of the Western world, social media is still the prime source of disinformation of conspiracy theories and pseudoscience. And especially around the COVID pandemic, we could see 
tons of research that showed that people who are only consuming news through social media are much more receptive and vulnerable to conspiracy theories, disinformation, vaccine skepticism, and COVID skepticism. So yes, it is, of course, important for two reasons. One is that it switches off the gatekeepers, and it provides the people with this, I would say, false sense of direct democracy, that everyone is a producer of information, everyone is a source of information, all sources are equivalent, and all can influence public opinion, which is essentially false. Most of the studies show that the disinformation market is pretty much supply-driven, and the most successful spreaders of disinformation are politicians, celebrities, and superpowers. And we can add sometimes, of course, companies as well who could be interested in spreading doubt about issues like, let's say, fossil fuel companies on the global warming and issues like that. So, But still, it gives this full impression that you, if you, an everyday person, just tweet out something or post it on the Facebook, it can be highly efficient in shaping public opinion, even if it's not. So one thing is that you, it's, it's the era where the gatekeepers are mostly over. Social media companies try, not always with a very strong motivation, but they try to filter out some of the disinformation, but it's mostly unsuccessful. And the other important thing is, of course, the filter bubbles. And this becoming the only filter, uh, the only gatekeeper. So your personal filters, and the filters are never perfect. So we should not imagine filter bubbles as something that puts you in a totally sterile information environment. You meet with contradicting opinions, but you usually meet them as well as coming from your bubble as a negative example of how stupid people are who are <laughs> thinking in other ways than we do. So the, mm-hmm. And the power of filter bubbles is that they can pull you into more and more radical narratives of your kind, and you, you think that everyone thinks the same way as you do. And you can just buy into more and more biased, one-sided narratives. And it, it is, of course, a big danger when it comes to conspiracy theories, disinformation, pseudoscience. But it's a problem of politics as well. With, and, and social media, of course, is not the primary source of polarization. And we could see in the 20th century that you don't necessarily need social media to have, yeah, let's say, uh, political cataclysms. But of course, it adds into the polarization and uh, political polarization and increasing need for conspiracy theories comes hand in hand. Conspiracy theories are usually reflecting this uh, hyperbolic political statements that express very strong negative opinion towards the political opponents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, now that we are talking about conspiracy theories, what are the most important elements of them that people are drawn to so strongly? Yeah, brilliant question. Um, I think first and most important, they are interesting. You can sell... You mean like uh, something something exciting? That's something that gives us the excitement that um, a UFO landing would? Or, or exactly okay. exciting and entertainment okay and you can sell movies with conspiracy theories i mean let's just think about the many films that have some conspiracy element and and that how well they are running in the movies or or in let's say movie sharing applications and so on mm-hmm. you can sell books with conspiracy theories and you can sell politics with conspiracy theories as well and uh, the conspiracy theorist in chief in the united states donald trump uh, we can just remind ourselves that he was he was coming from the entertainment industry, and he pretty well knew how entertaining conspiracy theories can be. He might have believed in some of them, but I think he also spread them politically because he knew that they are successful if you want to grasp the attention of the voters. And also you can sell articles with conspiracy theories. You can sell your products with conspiracy theories. You should not buy the products of the evil big pharma. 
we can provide you some clean natural product that is just <laughs> relying on thousands of years of traditions and it's it's sweet and pure it's non-industrial so the antithesis of of the conspiracy theories is usually something uh, that expresses this purity that the people are hungry for so one important point is this uh, excitement that they uh, provide the other important one is that they give people the false sense of control. Conspiracy theories usually simplify the word, not all the time. Sometimes conspiracy theories are more complicated than the word itself, <laughs> but still they, they usually give the same explanation in an axiomatic way to all the problems of the word, let's say the Jewish conspiracy. And then they give the illusion to the people that they can understand the word and the mm -hmm. most important background drivers. And this is an important point because conspiracy theories also express the need of people for some kind of knowledge, some kind of explanation. And even if conspiracy theories are not always the best explanations for the word, sometimes they can be valid. Most of the times we can say they are not but it, it expresses some hunger for real knowledge, information, and narratives that can explain the word. And the third element I would mention is conspiracy theories and fake news as well, usually, can provide as an outlet for our emotions, negative emotions like hatred and fear, and positive emotions as well, like hope. So psychologically, we are all pretty much receptive to certain kinds of conspiracy theories. And if we add to that, that suspicion and mistrust can be highly adaptive, evolutionary, because, of course, we are not always living in, in a very friendly environment, so we need to be suspicious sometimes, then conspiracy theories can have some evolutionary value as well. So for that reason, I, I think we should not always just downplay them as the mere expression of stupidity, because they can capture something that expresses some justified mistrust or frustration or negative experience. Mm. So, so is there any way to snap out of conspiratorial thinking and to stop the shift towards radicalism? In the world of social media, I think it's extremely difficult for the reason that if you are captured by the conspiratorial thinking, that there can be no refutation of the theory itself because all the information that is going against the theory are coming from sources that are seen by mistrust. The mainstream media, the scientists, the experts, the, the skeptics, the doctors, uh, the eggheads, and so on. So I think if someone is very deep into the rabbit hole, then it's, it's really difficult to pull him or her out. The true believers of conspiracy theories who are usually believing in many conspiracy theories at the same time, and they are linking them together, even if they are not in logical connection originally. So I think they are really difficult to get persuaded. The good news is that real hardcore believers of conspiracy theories are usually most of the Western societies are in minority. What is more important, I think, is that the majority, the undecided majority, who can sometimes selectively buy into some conspiracy theories, but do not necessarily have this strong psychological need to think about the way through this lens of conspiracy theories every time, so they can be persuaded. I think that if we have good counter-arguments against conspiracy theories. And in that respect, I still believe in the power of rationality. Our research, social psychological research, showed that ridiculing and rational argumentation can be both successful against conspiracy theories if the subjects are not true hardcore believers. So I think when we talk about this post-truth era, we sometimes overemphasize the importance of emotions, which I think are extremely important. But if we just lose our hope in rationality and we just lose the belief that good sound 
persuasive information, good articles, well-presented scientific facts, and so on, can change people's minds, then everyone who works in the knowledge industry should give it up. And I think it would be an utterly wrong conclusion. I don't think that people work differently these days, psychologically, than they did a few decades ago. The media environment have changed big time, and the trust in the traditional authorities have declined big time. But I think, let's say, um, promoting the knowledge and building back the reputation of traditional institutions, including science, including mainstream media, I think are still important tasks. And if there can be success in that, that it could lead to the decline of the popularity of conspiracy theories. Okay, that optimism I definitely subscribe to. So what is it that we can actually do? I mean, based on what you just said, there must be a very important role that fact-checkers play firstly, then there is a need for us skeptics as well. What is the correct way to communicate the facts so that we don't alienate people? Because that becomes, again, yet another psychological question, right? As to how to approach people with the facts. Yeah, first, I would say that, yes, fact-checking is important and the role of skeptics and experts and so on. But I would put the primary responsibility, not necessarily on experts, skeptics, or journalists, but on politicians, and not because I'm hardcore populists who want to blame everything on politicians, but because if we take a look at the countries where conspiracy theories are the most popular, including autocratic countries such as Turkey, Russia, semi-autocratic countries such as Hungary, and uh, democracies like the United States, they have something in common. And this is that leading politicians, mainstream politicians, are spreading conspiracy theories and disinformation big time. And uh, if the political elites are spreading disinformation, there are not so many things that other institutions can do against, including education, uh, including media, and so on. So it, uh, then it just becomes a brutal uphill battle. And for that reason, I think the first and most important thing is that politicians should stop spreading disinformation, which is, of course, totally out of our competence. But, but this is the most important root of the problem these days. How to present facts and how to present knowledge? This is, I think, an important question, of course, for everyone who wants to, let's say, push against this posturous zeitgeist. The most important thing, and this is quite difficult to achieve, of course, is that the more involving, the more democratic the process of spreading knowledge is, the higher the success can be. In a, in a populist era where people are fed up with authorities telling them what to know and what to believe in and what to reject, the arrogant way of, let's say, fooling everyone for not believing in the scientific facts can backfire. And the more empathic approach more empathy towards, let's say, the drivers of beliefs in conspiracy theories, in pseudoscience and so on, can lead to a better understanding of why conspiracy theories, for example, are popular and can lead to better strategies in pushing them back. But of course, it's really a difficult question for two reasons. First is that if we talk about science, for example, science is an elitistic institution by nature. And it is authoritarian by nature. So it, it really matters who says something and on what basis. So it's, it's not a democratic institution and it shouldn't be. Second, if you are over empathic with the believers of dangerous conspiracy theories, including, let's say, anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories, then you can help them to spread in the mainstream as well. So I think it's important to differentiate between the entrepreneurs who are active in spreading disinformation and everyday believers and recipients of disinformation. And I think you should be empathic towards the second group, but not that much to the first group. And it all comes with a many dilemma about 
when and how to debate with conspiracy theorists in public and so on and so on. I don't want to open up this huge topic. I, I'm sure you, <laughs> you have discussed it many times in the podcast, but there are many dilemmas to solve here. And a final sentence to this question is that I'm not sure we know the response to all the questions you raised. And probably we have to try to capture the zeitgeist through philosophical concepts first, and second, try to find these solutions. I think we are simply lacking the, the philosophical theories and concepts to capture this posthumous zeitgeist that we are <laughs> living in. And that's why we should welcome all the efforts of philosophers who are writing about the topics, such as, I think, the great Swedish philosopher Akka Wikifors, whose book is available in Hungarian as well, and who wrote, I think, a, a quite eye-opening book on alternative facts. One thing you're saying is that politicians need to, and then dot, dot, dot. How <laughs> do we get politicians to abandon something that apparently is working very well for them? They get re-elected and elected by promoting nonsense. How can we stop them from doing that? Why would they do it? The voters can stop them doing it uh, through giving a negative feedback to divisive politics and conspiracy theories. But then, of course, it would be a very easy response. I think I might over-idealize at this point the example of the Nordic countries and the countries where there is a more proportional political system But what we can observe is that mostly, let's say, triumph of conspiracy theories are typical in the political systems with the majoritarian logic, where the first pass the post and two big blocks are competing with each other. In more diverse, more, I would say, even fragmented, more pluralistic environments, like, correct me if I'm wrong, in Sweden, uh, if we take a look at the international polls, like in Europe Barometer and others, conspiracy theories are far less popular in Nordic countries than, let's say, in Central Eastern Europe, in Southern Europe, but even in the UK, for example. And the political system might be one reason for that. So creating, of course, it's, it's again, not our responsibility, but voters can decide to, let's say, vote for electoral reforms, for example, that create more pluralistic environments. And the more pluralistic media and political environment is usually the best cure against overpolarization and conspiracy theories because it leads to a more complicated political and information structure there and not, not that much to this black and white logic. Mm. Mm. That's a, a difficult, uh, it's a whole other interview, I think. We could talk about hours about this. But just shortly, I'd say that I don't know that the Nordic political system is that much different than others, but it just happened to be, for some reason that I don't know, that we have many more parties. We don't have this polarization, two big blocks fighting against each other. We have, I think, nine parties in the parliament at the moment, <laughs> which is... It's its own problem because they don't get anything done, but because they can't agree. But I don't know if we have a system that promotes that or why that is. I, I think that could have happened in any country, I believe. Yeah, you, you might be right. And, and I mean, just to tell an example from Central Eastern Europe or, or contrast different cases in Slovakia, for example, where there is a more proportional political system. It's practically a party list. And usually there are, okay, not nine, but six, seven parties in the parliament. At the same time, we can observe a much more dynamic political system. Some says that it's not always that efficient, as you say, because these are coalition governments with sometimes low capacity to for agreement. But on mm. the other hand, this dynamism and this pluralism reduces the chance of that someone can capture the power on its own and then spread its own narratives and make them exclusive. And it also reduces the chance that two big parties or blocks are competing with each other, like it is in Hungary these days with a mostly majoritarian political system, where, which results in a high level of polarization And in an environment where, of course, the governmental side has much more power 
to spread its disinformation narratives, but we should not think about the Hungarian opposition side, for example, as something that is totally lacking conspiracy narratives and this hyperbolic, hysteric theories. So if you have this highly polarized environments, then usually both sides is increasingly getting receptive to the uh, conspiracy thinking. And this is what I think we could observe in the United States as well. Yeah, no, I fully agree. <laughs> It's uh, interesting that you said that we have to start with the voters so that they will be able to change it. But is there a unified block of voters that we can work with? Or is there like an age correlation with the ability or, or the lack thereof <laughs> to recognize misinformation and step forward and say that we demand the truth? We demand something that is based on reality and science. Most of the research shows that elder voters are more vulnerable to disinformation. Mm -hmm. Is it because that they are using, for example, social media less confidently and mm -hmm. uh, with less expertise to say so, and therefore they can be more easily deceived by disinformation there? Or is it because that of the fact that they have a bit more rigid cognitive system, according to, to all psychological research, or is it both? We don't know exactly. I, I would say that it's most probably because of both factors. Mm -hmm. But it, it means that youngsters, for example, can have higher chance of, let's say, electing political players and parties that are a bit going against this tribal post-truth logic, If we think back to the U.S. election, back to 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, or for the Brexit vote, these alternatives were also mostly supported by elder voters, while the youngsters were rather voting against Trump and against Brexit. Also, Orban's voters are increasingly, let's say, voters uh, coming from the higher age groups, and the list goes on. The problem, of course, of Western society is that these are aging societies. And especially if you don't have, let's say, a larger immigrant community that could go against this kind of demographic trends in aging societies, elder voters who seem to be more receptive to this information have bigger and bigger say during the elections. So it's one thing. The other thing is the urban-rural divide. It seems like that especially if we talk about populism and then we should not directly translate it to the concept of disinformation, but populist parties are most, usually much more successful among uh, rural voters than among urban voters. So I, I think demographic factors clearly play a role. Also, education plays an important role. And I think it, it's good to have a more how to say, segmented picture on the societies on who is really receptive to this information. But I think we should not follow the major rule. And the major rule, what I usually emphasize as a social psychologist, is that no one is immune to this information. If we think that, that education can perfectly defend us, we are wrong. If we think that, yeah, the fact that someone is coming from a professional family, or someone is living in big cities, or someone is well-off, defends him or her from disinformation, we are wrong. And we are living in the era of motivated rejection of science, where for ideological reasons, let's think about the US conservatives, for example, you can reject major findings of science, even if you are pretty well-educated, and even if you are scientifically educated in the university. Mm. <laughs> and one, one more thing to that, and, and I, I just don't know the answer to my question, but there was a recent poll of Eurobarometer, which found that in scientific level of scientific knowledge, there are huge gaps in, among European societies with citizens of Sweden, Belgium, Finland, Luxembourg, for example, having three, four times as high scientific literacy than voters from Central and Southern European countries, like, let's say, Greece or Hungary, where these figures were particularly low. Is it because of the different societies? Is it because of the educational systems? We don't exactly know. 
But I think it seems to be that there is a, a clear proof of some kind of educational practices when it comes, for example, for scientific education are much more successful than than other ones and in that respect again don't i don't want to over idealize nordic and western educational models but some seem to be way more successful than others and just to quote one piece of research from this data 45% of the hungarian respondents thought for example that antibiotics are similarly efficient against viruses than against uh, bacterial illnesses, which is factually wrong. And this ratio, if I'm not mistaken, was about 16% or something in Sweden. So it's a huge difference. Yeah, that's a, that's a big difference. Yeah. And if you face a healthcare crisis, then these differences in scientific knowledge can matter a lot. So I, I think we, we should, let's say, we should have more knowledge on the ways of successful transfer of scientific information. And even if education is not a perfect shield against disinformation, some forms of education can be more successful. I just don't know enough for, uh, about these uh, educational systems in a comparative way to judge what are the best practices. But it's, it's I think, one of the biggest tasks for the future to understand mm-hmm. it. But we have re- we're recently going through, hopefully, the end of a big pandemic. Do you think that has changed people's attitude towards science? Yes, it changed, but in a highly paradoxical way. On the one hand, we can observe that in most of the Western societies, scientific knowledge had made some important progress and even triumph. So in most of the Western societies, people who vaccinated themselves against COVID are in absolute majority. If we take a look at the polls at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a huge rejection of the vaccines in most of the countries. So we've gone a long way in that respect. And also most of the citizens in Western societies were mostly abiding with the COVID rules. And of course, some just did that because they didn't want to be punished, but many even believed that they make some sense. On the other hand, I would say that the voice of the science skeptics, vaccine skeptics, and let's say populist deniers of scientific knowledge and critics of scientists have become louder as well and more influential. So the COVID rather polarized societies over science. And even if this polarization in most of the countries is asymmetric in the sense that, let's say, Supporters of science have become more strong than non-supporters of science, but I think there is still a threat of what I call a pseudoscientific revolution, where majority is becoming skeptical towards the representatives of scientific communities. When the majority blames the politicians and, let's say, virus experts and scientists and so on for lockdowns, for the need for vaccination, for economic troubles, for problems. And again, to connecting it to the previous issue, there was a huge pandemic where many people felt that their life is in danger for good reasons. And many had loved ones in their environment who they lost. And right now we are facing a political crisis when many are afraid that it can lead to a third world war or a nuclear catastrophe or whatever. I'm not among these, let's say, doomsday professors, but still, I think that, yeah, we are living in dangerous times. And in dangerous times, the attractivity of conspiracy theories, of religion, of pseudoscience, even if we should not put them, all of them in the same category, but any kind of narratives that can give us an explanation on what's going on in on the world and some relief for that there is some uh, better words somewhere that the current one is just, again, becoming more attractive. So for that reason, I think we should prepare for an era. There will be even more attacks against science, against mainstream politics, against universities, against mainstream media against the traditional authorities and the traditional producers of knowledge. Um, to stick a little bit with the uh, topic of the pandemic and what grew out of the pandemic is that we've, we've seen a couple of 
people who had been known previously for some kind of pseudoscientific field or conspiracy theory and peddling those, they started to shift towards the anti-vaccination, the anti-COVID, anti-COVID rules kind of attitude. And they jumped right on the opportunity to that, that opened up. But from the point of view of the people receiving all that, does believing in one kind of pseudoscience or conspiracy make you more prone to believing other stuff as well? Exactly. And this is a fact that is supported by many psychological research and also linguistic research, for example, on the overlapping between the different forms of, let's say, science denier and conspiracy narratives. We came up with the analog in our book, co-edited with Nora Fayuna, that just came out recently. We came up with this analog of the rabbit hole that has multiple entries and a lot of tunnels inside. So if you enter in the rabbit hole through one hole, let's say, flat earth theory, then you can pop up at a totally different one, like anti-vaccination or the other way around. You can buy into the pro-Russian anti-Western conspiracy theories. And then through this, let's say, catacomb of rabbit hole, you can add up elsewhere, for example, in COVID skepticism and denial. Mm -hmm. And usually you have one common element behind pseudoscientific and uh, conspiracy narratives, and this is the utter mistrust in the traditional authorities and especially scientific authorities. And this, this idea that there is a background power Big pharma, big politics, big business, big science are just cooperating in a highly malevolent way against the people. And it can also bring to quite bizarre consequences that any narrative that is denying the mainstream is automatically regarded to be true. And it was also illustrated by a beautiful research of researchers at the Kent University in the UK who showed that people who rejected the official news on how and when Osama bin Laden was shot dead by US troops, they tended to believe in two things at the same time. One is that Osama bin Laden is still alive. And the other one is that Osama bin Laden was already dead when he was found by the US troops. And according to our knowledge these days, these two cannot be <laughs> true at the same time. So one cannot be dead and alive at the same time, even if he's not a zombie. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, okay. No, it's just, yeah, Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> that's, that's what uh, Osama bin Laden has become. Schrodinger's bin Laden. <laughs> Okay, Peter, we have talked about a lot of very difficult and pessimistic things tonight. But I just hope that you can still say that you are optimistic about the future. Please tell us that, otherwise it'll be too dark. You know, <laughs> expecting optimism from a Hungarian speaker is probably, <laughs> uh, probably not, not a very hopeful <laughs> position. But, on, but I would say that I'm, I'm not born pessimist. And, uh, and when it comes to the experiences of the world with uh, conspiracy theories in general, I'm rather optimistic in the sense that I think we are living in the era where these divisive narratives are selling well in politics. This is the product that pundits are selling internationally as well. And yeah, they can produce and reproduce political victories. But on the other hand, to dilute a bit my pessimism, we can see <laughs> electoral results. We could see from the United States, we could see from France, from Austria and elsewhere, where, where sometimes the, let's say, owners of the most divisive narratives are defeated in elections. So or we can see Slovenia as well. So it's not a unidirectional route and uh, that we are heading into this era of darkness politically. So, but I see a bigger danger here. 
When it comes to the role of science in our contemporary societies, I would just remind the listeners what I just thought about this polarizing nature of the COVID, for example. So we cannot say that it was a triumph of pseudoscientists and COVID deniers and vaccine deniers. I mean, in Sweden, if I'm not mistaken, about 80% of the society has been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, in Hungary, it's more close to 65%, but it's even not that bad. I think that this kind of crisis to say a, a huge commonplace at the end of the, our conversation are, are providing uh, always some kind of opportunity <laughs> as well to strengthen the positions of science. And I do hope that the current political crisis of the Russian attack and aggression against Ukraine can provide uh, as well, I think, some kind of political opportunity to make the Western world more united and more standing up to our values And the early, let's say, votes in the European Council, the unity of the NATO and so on for me. And even the fact that countries like Sweden want to join the NATO. And <laughs> I, I can say that from a NATO candidate it would be mostly welcome. So uh, for me, it gives me some slight optimism in the sense that this crisis can lead to, let's say, strengthening of the democratic uh, Western world, its principles and values. Hmm. All right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, yeah, we just and it's it's important, isn't it, that we try to see outside of our opinion bubbles as well. That we see that it's it's not necessarily as dark as you said, very nicely. So, thank you very much, Peter Greco, for spending us so much time. Thank you for your time. Uh, you've been very generous with it. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, this is not the only opportunity where our listeners can catch you, because you will be speaking at the European Skeptics Congress in Vienna. So people just need to sign up for uh, the Congress. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be an amazing event. I'm pretty sure. And I'm not just saying that because we are among the organizers. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see you there. But um, to our Hungarian listeners, I have to say that if all goes according to plan, you will be hearing from Peter Greco a lot in the coming month. So uh, thank you very much. Again. Maybe too much as well. <laughs> Looking forward to speaking at the conference. And thanks again for the opportunity and keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. We'll try. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Well, I don't think there is much that we haven't discussed. No, that so, was uh, very comprehensive. <laughs> he is a very fascinating guy and he can indeed. really express a lot of thoughts and there is research behind what he's saying. So very, mm -hmm. very good. Yeah, it's, it's not like he's just phrasing his opinions. No, no, it's, no. Um, This is very good. And I can't wait to see him in person in uh, Vienna in September. He will, as we said, be one of the speakers and it'll be great to meet him. Yes, I can't wait either. It's coming. Yeah. It's September. It's... Come on. By the time this is released, it will be the last days of April. So four months of this year have passed. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. <laughs> happens every year. Every year. Every year. <laughs> <laughs> no, but All seriously, right. you have also, everybody listening to this, also have a chance to meet with uh, Peter. And uh, if you want to do that, you should sign up for the European Skeptics Congress. Starts. Exactly. It's between the 9th and 11th of September. We'll put it in the show notes, but the website is ecso.org, and that's where you can sign up. It's not very expensive, especially if you belong to a skeptic organization. You get 20 euros rebate. But also, if you sign up early, you will get another 10 euro rebate. So don't hesitate. Go to the site, sign up, and we'll meet you there in September. Yeah, and you can attend the dinner on Saturday night at a very, very affordable and very good price and uh, hang out with like-minded people in a little bit different way than you will be during the day when the conference is on. So it's it's going to be a little bit more informal. It's it's going to be so... I'm really looking forward to the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, it's very affordable. It's only 28 euros for the yeah. meal and for the whole thing. And you can meet with us and with other skeptics you sit round tables and it's a good opportunity to meet old and new friends and i can say that most people who have signed up so far have also opted for the dinner mm -hmm. so, so do that 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 i yeah. highly recommend it 
And what else I highly recommend is if you can stick around for Sunday afternoon, go on the tour. That is also an option on the website. There's actually three different tours. Yeah, you can do different tours, and uh, but they'll all be good, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know which one I'm going to be choosing yet, but uh, even though I have had groups that I guided in Vienna, Vienna is an amazing city, so make sure that you have enough time to look around, to walk around. Beautiful, wonderful. It's such an elevating thing to be there. So. Uh, but I think <laughs> we should probably stop talking. It's been a long episode as it is. Thank you very much, Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. And many thanks to our listeners for tuning in as well. Please keep doing so. Hopefully next week we'll have Onika back again. I'm counting on so, it. So until then, goodbye. Bye-bye. Vislat. Hey, do. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesb.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Set out to bring you news, interviews, and interesting. <laughs> interesting. Why don't you start? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just having a sip of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to go on for much longer. <laughs> yeah, as I usually do. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good, very good. Okay, thank, thank you. Is so there much. any topic in the world that we haven't talked about? I just <laughs> I, I think it was it's very, like... <laughs> it was a very comprehensive and uh, very good interview. You almost, <laughs> almost forgot. <laughs> I did, but I saved it. <laughs> you saved it. You did, definitely did. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs>